I'm Professor Henry Louis Gates Jr. And today I'm walking the tightrope. We are witnessing America as a failed social experiment. How do we tell this story in a way that builds the kind of emotional momentum that colorblind ideology builds? So many young brothers and sisters of the younger generation find themselves so far removed from the best of their past. What are we going to make out of the nothing we've been given? How do you envision possibility? Hey, everyone. I'm Trisha Rose. Welcome to The Tightrope. I'm here with my dear friend and colleague, Dr. Cornell West, and you are joining us for part two of a fantastic conversation that we had with Professor Henry Louis Gates Jr. and two friends known as Skip, and he was just a font of extraordinary information. And so we were able to continue that conversation at length. So today is part two of that terrific discussion, and we're thrilled you're here to join us. So we hope you enjoy it as much as we did. I was thinking about the the question that Skip really opens us to think about, which is, you know, when Africans come to the new world and replicate institutions from which they were excluded, you know, how do we understand that replication? Because it sounds like on the one hand, it was mirroring, but on the other hand, it was dramatically revising those very right. institutions. Absolutely. And so Absolutely. it's figuring out how to not not overemphasize the total creation of brand new unrecognizable institutions but on the other hand not saying this is just placating white supremacist organizations and reproducing them but in uh, fact transforming them in the ways that were absolutely essential and in that sense it borrows even from you know septima clark's you know freedom schools which was take what you need reject what you don't build what you want to build. That is a kind of flexibility. I just wanted to go back to that, Skip, because it seems very important that we not imagine that people of African descent would somehow replicate African, West African institutions over here under these circumstances that they would necessarily have to work with the materials at hand and at the same time bring a very different cultural, psychological, spiritual, ethical, aesthetic set of expectations and, and hopes to it. So can you speak a little bit about that kind of retention versus, you know, transformation and not, not necessarily just borrowing dominant societies, institutions? Oh, absolutely. I think that's a superb point. There were retentions, of course, but with retention necessarily came innovation. Right. And revision. And revision. There was no single African institution that was shipped whole hog in full unfragmented form right. across the ocean through the Middle Passage. People had shards, people had fragments, so that they had to, to work with uh, the tools at hand, right? Then you had this mixture. You know, the scholars now estimate there were about 50 ethnic groups from Africa, only 50, but that was a lot. You know, there are 1,500 ethnic groups in Africa but there are 50 that came in the slave trade. And to the United States, predominantly, there were five, maybe six. And they extend from Senegambia down to Angola. So they were bringing those five or six dominant peoples. And I wrote them down for you so I could read them because it's fascinating just to hear their names. The Igbo, we all know the Igbo from Eastern Nigeria, the Mandinka, the Fulbe, the Akan, and the Wolof. 
in you know, the Wallafer from Senegal, totally Muslim. The Akan are from Ghana. Anthony Appiah is a, oh, okay. a Akan speaker, right? Mm -hmm. um, and then the Mandinka and the Fulbe. So, you know, you get here, it's like a bouillon base, it's like a big stew. You know, you had all these people with their customs and practices bouncing off each other, obviously not intermarrying, but mating or, you know, reproducing and uh, cross-pollinating, cross-fertilizing. Now, remember the church, which was predominantly Anglican in British North America until 1680, wouldn't even let these people be baptized. Even though the Anglican church in England had let Africans become baptized. Uh, the Roman Catholic church in Florida, remember, black people get there in 1526. The Roman Catholic church has a long history going back to the 14th century mm -hmm. of acknowledging black, in effect, religious fraternities in Europe, in Sevilla, for example, and the historian Jane Landers writes about that. So the irony is that the Roman Catholic Church was very open to uh, the baptism and conversion of Black Africans, but the shocking thing is the leading owner of slaves in the New World was the Roman Catholic Church, the leading institution that owned more slaves than anybody else in the new world was the Roman Catholic Church. And you know, Trish, the second dominant presence in the slave trade, the Jesuits themselves. So if you're making the top five, number one is the Roman Catholic Church, number two are the Jesuits. And everybody is aware of the role of the Jesuits, shockingly, because of, in 1838, the sale of the 272 slaves owned by the Jesuits at Georgetown. Georgetown University, yeah. yeah. For many people, that was like a huge revelation, but it wasn't an aberration. It mm -hmm. was a shared practice of the Jesuits and the Roman Catholic Church as capitalist corporations, in yeah. effect. But back to your point, there was not one cultural practice that either uh, survived whole hog from Africa without change, or which our ancestors were dropped into and just practiced. It just didn't happen that way. Right, right. They changed it's all it's back, it's back to signifying, though. I mean, you made this clear in 1988 that the repetition, the revision, the recasting, the transfiguring that takes place in process as new circumstances present are presented to people and as new voices generating new insights, all of it under the most barbaric circumstances, but still a dynamism that's taking place there. And I mean, for me, the question becomes, I mean, every human being has to have some Cairo, some kinesis and some kenosis. And what I mean by that is mm. we have to have ways of making the distinction between chronos, everyday time and meaningful moments in time. This is what mm -hmm. rituals do, you see from birthdays to songs to whatever it is, marriages, nightclubs, church <laughs> gatherings, dialogues on tightrope. Cause I mean, this is Cairo's moment. We have a good time, you know, <laughs> but, but, but at the same time, but, but, but kinesis is how do you keep folk in motion connected right. 
to those meaningful moments, given the overwhelming character of Kronos, which is usually domination and so forth. But then there's kenosis, which is most important. How do black people learn to love themselves enough to love their children yeah. so that they have a sense of a future? So that the future is not an abstraction. It's very concrete. It's little Jamal and Roosevelt and this, this little, little Skip and little Trisha and little Corn. <laughs> and the right. parents looking at the sparkle in our eye. What I'm going to do with these Negroes? <laughs> Troublemakers, all of them. <laughs> I'm love them. But if I love them in a white supremacist world, they're not going to have a grand future, but I'm going to love them enough that they're going to have the best future possible. And right. they don't know when the breakthrough is going to take place, you see. But then why was it, though, that our precious Muslim brothers and sisters and their tradition didn't sustain itself? One, because remember, the estimates go from 8 to 20%, right? Well, that's, that's so, a big range there. Yeah, even at the maximum, 80% would be either practicing traditional African ancestor worship or be Roman Catholic. And then since 59% arrived after 1750, remember the slave trade right. ends in 1808, they come in the midst of the Great Awakening and the Methodists are converting everybody, right? And they just, <laughs> yeah, no, no, yeah, I hear you. I yeah. Hear you. So, but we you. have um, legacies. We have, that um, we tell the story of Balali and he left a manuscript which is now in the Library of Congress, I believe, that he left an Arabic manuscript about how to practice Islam. And we have stories of, of one of my favorite stories is of Joe Ben Solomon in Annapolis, Maryland. He kept running away and they thought he was crazy. So finally his owner put him in jail and it turned out he was running away because he had to pray. He had to turn east and do his prayers five times a day. So he was running away in order to pray. So they put him in this jail and a lawyer named Thomas Blewett, B-L-U-E-T-T, -T, was just traveling, happy to go through Annapolis. And he heard about this African who was writing on the walls in a strange language. And he goes in and he interviews Joe Ben Salm. And he realizes that he's writing in Arabic. And Joe Ben Solomon gives him a letter I swear to before Jesus, as our people say, that what I'm about to say is true. It is so counterintuitive that you just, it just can't you put it in, believe it or not. Joe Ben Solomon sits down, writes a letter addressed to his own father. He gives it to this lawyer. The lawyer gives it to James Oglethorpe. Oglethorpe, you know, is founder of the Georgia colony. Oglethorpe has it sent up to Oxford and translated by the professor of Arabic. And basically the letter said, dear daddy, get me out of here, get me out of here. <laughs> he got me wow. out of Wow, wow. He was of noble birth. And the reason Joe Ben Solomon was caught is that he was trying, he was selling slaves to the Europeans. And the sea captain tricked him and enslaved him himself. Wow. He wow. ends up on a plantation in Annapolis. When this letter is translated, they go, this guy's a prince. And Oglethorpe and these other English people raise enough money to pay for his freedom. They bring him to London. His portrait was painted, which is in the National Portrait Gallery, beautiful portrait, with the Koran around his neck. He was the toast of the town in London. He even met King George II, predecessor of the infamous George III. Right. And everybody wanted, invited him to dinner parties. 
Bluet Public. Well, that's a storyteller right there. He's got a story to tell. <laughs> Bluet published the book about him in 1733. The Royal African Company hired him, sent him back to Senegambia, and the first thing he, as their agent, and the first thing he did was buy a slave. Wow, wow. Human, also human, brother. Isn't that also, something? remember when, when I did my first African series, Cornell, and everybody wanted to lynch me because I talked about the role of African elites in the slave trade. Now it's even in children's books. But I remember Malefi Osante got so angry at me because the stereotype we have is that our ancestors were out on a picnic one Sunday and some white man jumps out the bushes and throws a net on him. But that's crazy. It wasn't like that. Yeah. European did not penetrate the interior of Africa for a long, long time, which is why the story of Stanley and Livingston was so riveting to American readers after the Civil War, because no white men were in the interior. They were along the coast in what they called forts. And African elites would engage in wars, among other means, primarily war, capture other people that we call Africans. They wouldn't have called Africans. It'd be Igbo and Yoruba or right, Wolof right, and Fulbe. Right. They would capture them, then bring them down in canoes to the coast, right. to the European forts where the ships would be waiting and then they would be shipped to the new world. And you know, one of the things that we were taught too, which is not true, is that, well, those Africans, slavery was better in Africa and the Africans didn't know how bad it was. Man, the truth is there were often translators and crewmen who were African on the slave ships, who would be hired to go both ways, to translate and to run the ships. So it, it's enormously complicated. It's compli but, what, but what that teaches us is, we ought to have a deep suspicion of the black bourgeoisie. They no will sell you out and co-op you in a minute. It's a human thing in that yeah. point now. Even worse, many of the chiefs <laughs> of these African societies would make the you know major domo of the slave trade make right. him marry the chief's daughter so that he had a claim on them. And there were a whole mulatto class of slave traders, half European, half African, who dominated over the slave trade in certain areas like the Pongo area in Sierra Leone is very famous because uh, John Orman Jr. was one of these people, but this was common practice. I'm wondering how we can nuance as you so eloquently have done for years, right? The fact that there's no one group of people, particularly a fictitious race of people, right? Because this is all a fiction that is more morally superior and another group inferior, right? That's across the board that some people are evil and some people aren't. Now, let's reject all of that, of course. But at the same time, there, there has to be a way to be able to draw distinctions, to be able to say, yes, all kinds of groups of people have enslaved each other, but that does not mean that the Western slave trade was not a source of enormous suffering for black people. So, oh, of course. Right, but, but I mean, I know you all know this, but I'm thinking of the ways in which the facts get deployed to say, well, look, anybody can enslave people, so why are y'all so mad at white folk? <laughs> You know, oh, yeah. I mean, oh, basically. Yeah. So what's your answer to that, yes. bro? <laughs> well, I'm, I'm no expert on the institution of slavery all throughout history and all around the world. 
but it's difficult for me to imagine a more heinous system, a system more deeply imbued with and seeped in evil than the system invented in the new world. And there's nothing like it in Africa. Now, I don't want to, it's wrong to romanticize being a slave anywhere. Being a slave means somebody else owns you. They could rape you. They could beat you. They could do whatever. And that was true in Africa and, and true in China. And, and the history of civilization is coterminous with, with the history, history of slavery. Right. The history of slavery is coterminous with the history of civilization. That's just the way it is. There were slaves everywhere. The word slavery, as you know, derives from Slav etymologically because many of the slaves in Europe were of Slavic descent. Origin. Now, what was done to our people because it was racialized in such a horrible and pseudoscientific way, uh, I think because the profits yielded yeah, that, um, by our labor was un or unprecedented. The profits were unprecedented through sugar first. And because we're Americans, we don't think about sugar. I just happen to be married to a Cuban woman. So I'm, I did you know. Sister, I did sister, sister <laughs> And in 2009, I, I made the series of PBS called Black and Latin America. And until that time, I was not aware of the crucial role of sugar as the world's first commodity crop. You know, the British built a whole cultural institution around the popular availability of sugar. Of sugar. Before <laughs> the sugar production opened in, in the new world, only rich people could have sugar. It was too expensive. But when the new world opened, there was so much good soil for sugar. I, what, but what you needed was an intensive, large labor force which led to the importation of Africans in dramatic numbers. Absolutely. The average lifespan of a usually male enslaved person on a sugar plantation was seven years. And it was hard work. So Haiti, which was Saint-Domingue, was the richest colony in the history of the world. Why? Because of sugar. And when- And the, free uh, black labor. Yeah, and free black labor. But when, um, well, remember that 388,000 figure for the United States? Mm -hmm. Haiti got 772,000 Africans. Uh, Jamaica got a million. Cuba got 940,000. And most of those enslaved people came to Cuba after 1810. You wanna know why? There's only 50 miles that separate Haiti and Cuba. The sugar industry, obviously when it was shut down, by the success of the Haitian Revolution, just moved. When those sugar barons saw that they were gonna lose, the French Bonaparte's army was going to lose or had lost to the Haitians, they just moved all the sugar production to Cuba. Cuba, the slave trade didn't take off till the 19th century. Mm. And you know when it ended? I'm gonna get this wrong, but I think the last slave ship came to Cuba about 1866 or so, you have to fact check me. And slavery ended in Cuba in 1886 and it ended in Brazil in 1888, mm. all because of sugar. Right. And there were intellectuals in England, for example, who boycotted sugar in their tea. And when I said that the British created culture around it, it was tea time, four o'clock mm -hmm. is tea time and you have sweets you have tea, you put it, milk in your tea and sugar. And there were 
English intellectuals who refused to use sugar because it was tainted, tainted with blood. For us, of course, it was cotton. Between 1830 and 1860, the greatest economic boom in the history of America for a long, long time, I don't know if that's still true, but it was true for a long, long time, was when cotton became king. Right. In eight, 1830, Andrew Jackson signs the Indian Removal Act. You know, all those movies we've seen about the Trail of Tears, right? Well, what the, what the movies leave out was that the, the, the five civilized tribes, as they were called, the Creek, the Choctaw, Chickasaw, Cherokee, and the Seminole, were moved out of the richest cotton growing soil maybe in the whole world. And they were moved to their own country, which was called Indian Territory, which becomes the state of Oklahoma eventually in the first decade of the 20th century. They were moved out so that white people could come in, claim the land and create these huge plantations, which also led, as Trish just said, to the need for black bodies. Somebody right. had to plant and pick Absolutely. all that cotton. But see, that's another reason though, brother, why you can't talk about race without talking about predatory capitalism and the imperial expansion of the yep. peoples dispossessing their lands, violating their bodies, and then the resistance to it. Right. Point out, that, yes. Slavery is race and class melded into Absolutely. one pernicious entity. Absolutely. And they moved one million, you know, there's the first mental passage, the second middle passage, they shipped 1 million of our African-American ancestors starting around 1800 up to 1860 from the upper South to the Cotton Belt because the soil had been depleted in Maryland and Virginia tobacco, right? You right. learned that in elementary school. You got to learn how to rotate crops. You need remember the soybeans and all that stuff we had to learn about. The soil was depleted. They didn't need to enslave people as much and they sold themselves. That's where the phrase being shipped down the river comes from. To connect your two points, you yes, know, this yes. predatory capitalism today is displacing labor sources to reclaim land, doing it in urban contexts, right? We're seeing what gentrification is and what the repositioning of black communities. Of course, it's not slavery, but incarceration is very much part of that same system. Well, this is bouncing off of something that you and Cornell said in different ways. And it's about the role of the black bourgeoisie, the role of the African-American elite. At any given point in the history of our people after federal census is, is taken, right? Which starts in 1790, about 10% of the African-American community was free. It goes from 10 to 12%. So you want specific example, in 1860, there were 3.9 million enslaved African-Americans. There were 488,000 free African-Americans and 262,000 of them, this is the counterintuitive point, lived in the South or the border states, lived in the states where slavery was legal. Was, was legal. Which That's is right. astonishing yeah. when you think about it because we yeah. were raised to think, remember Ishmael Reed says, the slave, the first to read and write was the first to run away. But that's not true. Moved when across people, the street. <laughs> right. When, when people were free, and, and most scholars off the record will say maybe 25,000 people uh, were able to follow the North Star and the Underground Railroad. You know, estimates go up to 100,000. If it was all that easy to escape, slavery would have collapsed. You know, the image we have of Harriet Tubman is showing up at Grand Central Station blowing a whistle 
and you know, ten thousand black people come out <laughs> and they get on the underground railroad. It was very hard to escape. No, she's courageous. She's courageous. She was courageous, and, and she rescued about seventy people. Even Du Bois estimated that she she has that she freed three hundred, but she freed about seventy people. That's a lot. And she oh yeah. For that. Absolutely. So maybe twenty five thousand escaped from the underground railroad. The majority of freed black people stayed exactly where they were free. And they did that because all their neighbors were there, their families were there. And because of many states, and I'll give you an example from my own family, to uh, discourage a master from freeing his slaves, the master had to give the slave land and enough resources in order to thrive so they wouldn't be a burden on anyone. So three sets of my fourth grade grandparents were free two sets by the American Revolution, and one set, Joe and Sarah Bruce on my father's mother's side, were freed by a white man named Abraham Van Meter in his will in 1823. I have a copy of the will. We made a film about this, you know, in Finding Your Roots. But Abraham Van Meter gave him a thousand acres of land. And some of my Bruce cousins still own that land. And the punchline is three, these three sets of free Negroes, as we would have said, lived 30 miles from where I was born. Wow. Mm. They lived 30 miles from where I was born, just to show you wow. how wow. people didn't move. You know, right. what were they going to do? Go to Boston right. or New York and, and be homeless? <laughs> you know, right. They stayed right. where they are. But my point, going back to the free Negro community, is take Bishop Daniel Payne of the AME Church. He was born free. He was a minister in South Carolina for a while. Then he, he moved to the north. Well, after the Civil War, AME descends on the newly freed population in the South to proselytize. But here's where the cultural conflict comes up. The AME uh, people from the north wanted them to basically metaphorically march in straight lines, right? They conform, conform to their <laughs> they wanted to be dignified. That's they right. wanted to That's know, right. no Holy Ghost. Remember, Du Bois talks about the three elements of the church, the preacher, uh, the music, and the frenzy. And the That's frenzy, right. we, we know as uh, after Azusa Street and Koji, the founder of the Church of God in Christ, is speaking in tongues, right? But Which goes back to the New Testament, of course. And there were forms of spirit possession in Africa that our ancestors also brought with them in the Middle Passage. So oh, yeah. I love this story, and I put it in the book. So Daniel Payne is in the backwoods <laughs> in the South, and he's watching a traditional black church service. And the people are going out, in, and Trish, you know, they join in hands and shuffling feet, doing the ring <laughs> shot. He jumps out of the pulpit, goes, stop, stop, stop. You're doing devil worship. The devil <laughs> what? <laughs> Worshiping the devil. This is wrong. No. And he called the spirituals cornfield ditties. Cornfield ditties. Can you imagine? There that's, was huge class That's where that class sensibility comes in. You see, my folk in Shiloh Baptist Church, we were doing more than just moving like that. When the spirit hits, it don't get pretty, but it's real. And it's real. <laughs> it's real. And that's where the blues, that's where funk, that's where certain versions of hip hop, most versions of hip hop and so forth come from because it's from the culture of the folk who have been viewed as less than even by the black middle class. Right. I asked everybody that I interviewed if they had been saved. I asked John Legend. Now, John Legend 
was accepted by our beloved Harvard University, turned it down to go to Penn. You know John Legend. In fact, he's so excited, he just became an executive producer of this new series. He's one of our executive producers. Mm, God bless him. Of the Black Church, yeah. And I really like him, we have a good relationship. So I'm sitting in the recording studio and I said, John, will you say? And I asked Jennifer Hudson the same thing. And he looked at me like, of course. I think he said he was saved at the age of seven. And I said, did you get the Holy Ghost? He said, absolutely. He said he was possessed. He rolled across the floor all the way, hit the wall and started talking in tongues. He said that just like you would say, it's 33 degrees outside this my kitchen window right now. And I went to church almost every Sunday over the two year period when we were making this series. And I saw all kinds of people get the Holy Ghost. And I talked about in my book how I was terrified of walking past the Church of God in Christ because I was afraid the Holy Ghost was going to snatch me. <laughs> I thought the Holy Ghost lived in the Church of God in Christ. Because <laughs> I'd hear these strange noises of people going crazy talking in these languages. I don't want any of that. <laughs> no, but that's that's that it's it's so much a fundamental part of so many of us in terms of how we grew up and how we live and and the relations that we have with others and how we sustain our sense of who we are in that way. There's no doubt about it. And I'll tell you something, I don't care what a scientist says, I don't care where, what the most rational professor at Brown University where Tricia <laughs> teaches, or at Harvard, where Cornell and I teach, or at Yale, where the three of us all met. Tricia is my student, Cornell is my colleague. Precious years, precious memories, saying. precious memories. Oh, that was a golden age. That was a golden age. It was me. amazing. But it yeah, was, go ahead, Skip. And I have to say, Trisha and Elizabeth Alexander, the most brilliant students I ever had in my whole life. <laughs> yeah, well, thank Della you for that. Truth, thank you. Della and we truth. worked for you. We we were your students and your, we worked on your encyclopedia project. Thousands and thousands you, of students. <laughs> well, every Sunday, I would go to these churches filming, and I watched people get the Holy Ghost. And sometimes... I felt like I bet if I came back here next week, sister so-and-so would be doing the same gestures and, uh, and not to put anybody down, but I felt like it was stage part of a routine. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Something that just that they did, but in the overwhelming number of cases, there's something real that happens when people get the Holy ghost. There's oh. something real that happens when people yeah. are speaking in tongues. Absolutely. It is something not not to be mocked or underestimated, but to be marveled at. The frenzy is real. Oh, yeah. there's no doubt about it. Well, it I shows mean, up in other religious practices as well, right? Yeah. The transcendent state that you have to let go to get into, to, to be part of. is very powerful. What do you think is the, either of you, the, the spiritual benefit of that? What do you think happens? Is it about connection? Is it about letting go? Is it about opening up and letting the spirit in? What, what do you think is the, the main benefit or value of this practice? Cornell, I would love your, your take yeah, on that. First. I, I think it is, I mean, really, you know, Brother uh, Braxton has written the best book on this. When his book comes out on the Gospels, he lays it out. But Braxton Shelley. I have a, yeah, exactly. I have a slight, I mean, his argument is, is that it is the fleshification of a new world made available through sound mm. so that it authorizes an alternative reality and world that you can make connection with through your corporeality, through your body, 
through the deepest feelings that you have that opens you up in such a way that you can generate new kinds of energies and vitalities. Now, mm. I love that argument. I think it's powerful. But for me, it is the coincidence of those three Ks that I talked about. It is that kairos mm -hmm. and the kinesis that allows you to keep moving so you don't get locked into despair and locked into despondency and locked into immobility. Because see, the, the deepest foe of black life is immobility. Mm -hmm. That's, that is a form of unfreedom on every level, mm -hmm. space, time, everything. You got to keep on pushing, as Curtis, keep <laughs> on moving. Right. So, so you got to keep somehow you got to keep in time with time over against the worst of time in order to help redeem temporal moments. Mm. But, right. then, but then there's also kenosis, which is to learn how to empty yourself. You can't be anybody who's open, who, who is a Christian, who is open to the spirit, but also acknowledging that when that spirit hits you, you're not in control. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. This ain't Socratic self-mastery. Mm -hmm. You see? And this is one of the reasons why when the folks talked about laughing, because you see, Jesus never laughs. Mm -hmm, Just like mm -hmm. cry. Because right. laughter itself is a sign of something that's out of control. Uh-huh. You see, that's I mean, a good mom, point. Oh yeah, those are moms maybe lay it out. You can sit there and be respectable all you want, but you just you know you falling out when, when Richard Pryor lays it out, <laughs> Monique lays it out, all of a sudden you out of control. You see? It's true. It's oh, true. Yeah, very much so. Now, now Jesus may have had a sense of humor, he may have hid his mirth. We argue, we understand that. But the thing is, is that there's a certain freedom there. There's a certain mm. freedom there, psychic mm. freedom, spiritual right. freedom. Might spill over to political, economic, and social freedom if they get organized. <laughs> well, once you once you start adding freedoms, you might as well keep it going. That's absolutely right. Once you start opening that space, well, Tricia will remember a poem. It's a series, and you know the the racist white supremacist make it illegal for black people to laugh in public. Right. So he right. got to go in the phone booth. He's got to go in the phone booth to laugh. Like, in order like to laugh. Hush Harbor. That's right. <laughs> right, right. That's Is true. it Slim yeah. Greer? Slim Greer. Slim Greer, you got Slim it. Greer. And it's a whole cycle on Slim Greer. But that's genius. And that is a poetic representation of what Cornell mm. just said. The only, it never happened to me. I joined the church when I was 12. It's too emotional for me to recount, but I write about it in my book. And I also, I film it and tell the story in front of Ooh. some of the congregation and the descendants of the congregation in my hometown when it happened in 1962 when I was 12 years old. And I mm -hmm. did it because my mother was gonna, told me she was gonna die. And so I joined the church and made a deal with Jesus that I would give my life to Christ if it didn't let my mother die. So, and my mother didn't die. And so when she came home, I went, I looked at the mirror and go, oh my God, you can't mess with God, right? I got to join the church. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because if you don't and she passes away, you're in a world of trouble, brother. That'd be on me. But I was very serious about it. I'm not trying to mock it. And when well, I yeah. went, went through the, the ceremony, I mean, I cried and everybody in the church cried, but I never got the Holy Ghost. But I did have the following experience, which I have never written about. Back in New Haven, in 1975, I had just come back from England. I was still a graduate student in England, but I came back to go to Yale Law School. I went to Yale Law School for a month and then I took a leave of absence and Charlie Davis gave me a job typing 
in the program in Afro-American Studies, 493 College Street, because he had in, in mind, well, the, the idea gradually evolved that I would finish my dissertation and get a job teaching African-American literature. And that, of course, is thanks to Charles Davis, what happened. But I don't know if you remember, but TM, Transcendental Meditation, was mm -hmm. all the rage. There was a cover story about it in Time Magazine. So I read about it, and there was a TM center um, just off the green in, in New Haven, um, which for people who don't know the Yale campus or, or New Haven, it's just a few blocks away from the Yale campus. Right. And so I don't know how much, like $50 or something, whatever it was, I paid my money and I said, let me check it out. Because I was always interested in mysticism and in Zen Buddhism. And it was sort of the rage anyway, you know, from the hippie movement, the Beatles, you know, going to the Maharishi, right. you know, all that. So I said, well, right. you know, so I scraped together my little bit of money and I went down. So I walked in to this little room. And the first off, the woman initiating me into it was a white American woman. And I was disappointed. I wanted an Indian or an Asian. You know, I wanted the real deal. I mean, this is right. where my, my prejudices were. And I was thinking, well, man, I paid $50 for this. So I sit down and I go, what am I supposed to do? And she said, I'm going to start saying a word, which is a mantra. It's a Sanskrit word. You can never tell anybody what it is. And when I start to say it, you repeat it. And so she starts to say it in this rhythmic way. And I, Trish and Cordell, I have to admit, she started to say it. I started to say it, but I was busting out laughing like my father would be about how ridiculous it was. And I, was, I said, I'm going to give this about three minutes. I'm going to get up and walk out of here. And I swear to goodness, I start saying this. All of a sudden, it was like the top of my head opened up, I felt this enormous relief of energy. Tears rolled down my face uncontrollably. And it, I was just transported. It was, I got the Holy Ghost. I mean, I got whatever that thing is. Wow. Happened to me in that little room at the Transcendental Meditation Center in New Haven. Haven, Connecticut on the green. Uh, so Skip, I, what was the phrase? Do you remember? I can. I've never told anybody, and I, I, I never will. I promise. I gave my word, but I've tried it again. I never had that experience again. <laughs> I bet you, Joe. I'll tell you. That's why I want to know the word myself. Wow, that's so powerful. That's a true story. I that, swear. That's to something, though, man. And that's, that's, that's William out, James, brother. That's variety of religious experience. That oceanic feeling. That. Roland and Freud and the others could not deny something was going on. You cannot deny something. Yeah. And I will, I swear for God, you know, I mean, I, I, know, I hear you. It was there. Yeah. And uh, I, I don't well, poo -poo it. And I, I, I know it's real. Yeah, know? no, it is. And, you know, we, we, this is the problem too with, with the beauty and the problems of Western science is that we think if it can't be measured a certain way, it doesn't exist. And we that's know right. that's not true. And figuring out how to value these incohate experiences that don't have words, that don't have logical sequences, but that are ultimately this, I think, profound energy source in the world. 
that you know we need to show a lot more respect for and so your work is is gonna i mean this series on the black church is going to be an important contribution to that so i'm thrilled i can't wait for it to come out tell us the date before we go february 16th february 16th the first two hours and february 23rd the second two hours it's called the black church this is our story this is our song which of course is from blessed assurance now here's an example of signification trish Blessed assurance, you, you think, well, was that one of the old Negro spirituals? It was composed by a white woman in 1873, a blind white woman named Fanny Crosby. Are um, you kidding did, me? Did the words, and the music was written by Phoebe Knapp, who was her friend. She played the tune on the piano and asked Fanny Crosby, who was known as the queen of gospel, totally white, was, what words come to mind? And she said, blessed assurance, Jesus is mine. And so we debated about the name of the series, and it was down to how I got over. Mm. We're going to use Aretha's version or Blessed Ooh. Assurance. So I asked, and that's tough, you know. So I asked yeah. different people. I asked Oprah, and she said she wanted to think about it. Next morning, I had a message from Oprah, and I played it, and it was her singing. This is our story. This is our song. <laughs> <laughs> so that was it, huh? Raising our it. savior all the all day long. This I is my story. <laughs> but you know what? When but I you, was... either one of them would have been good, though. Claire Ward, Claire Ward's How I Got Over would have been deep, too, though. My soul oh looks back God. and wonders how I got over. Ooh. Oh, they would have been great. But either you know, one. being able to combine the metaphor of the story and the song, I thought, well, that oh, yeah. The destiny. Yeah, yeah, that's perfect. And well, you know what? I was creating um, a playlist for versions of Blessed Assurance. And only a week ago did I realize that Monk, Theolonia's Monk, does a rendition on Straight No Chaser. And I almost fell over. And I downloaded it. I didn't realize that either. Straight No Chaser, it is Blessed Assurance, man. And it's just Monk solo doing Blessed Assurance. Isn't that? Wow. You listen to it as soon as this is over. I'm going to listen will. to that tonight. I didn't yeah, know that, that. I didn't know that. Well, that's very a lot of people. Trisha Rose and Cornell West, I want to thank you for doing this podcast every week because when it started, we were in one kind of crisis. <laughs> we're always in a crisis, <laughs> but we were in a deep crisis and we needed sane, deeply thoughtful voices engaging in sober exchange. And what I like is the intellectual equality that you two have, the subtlety and the complementarity that you have. You bring different disciplines to your discourse, different points of view. One's a man, one's a woman. Your Cornell's are slightly older than you are, Trish. Oh, um, yeah, oh, 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 just, 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 just a little, yeah, just look. I'm twice her age. I'm twice. Lord, her age. I wish you were Cornell. <laughs> Believe you me, I wouldn't fight. I wouldn't fight Jesus on that one. Let me tell you. And so you have the generational angle right. as well, and you just—it's uh, a fabulous. It was a fabulous. Well, thank idea. you so I'm much, really, Skip. We really appreciate that. No, it's, that's it's been a blessing. An honor for me to be in, no. on the tightrope. Well, you welcome on the tightrope anytime you want. You gave you gave us a profound history lesson today and that's exciting true. revision that's to things true. people probably assume to be true. And that's a real gift you have. So you keep it. You keep and staying strong out here, bringing the 
bringing the truth and the storytelling and the artistry. So we're, we're really grateful for you. That's the best review I could ever receive. Thank you so much. Thank you, um, Skip. Tell we'll Yvonne see you Green again. And Brother Corn, I'll see you in the in the square whenever I'll I get my back. in the square whenever this lockdown is over, brother. We love you, and you're putting a smile on your father's and mama's face from the grave. No doubt <laughs> you about are it. A gift, brother. You a gift, man. You a gift. Thank you. All right, we I love, love you, Skip. Too. All, right. All right. Take Bye -bye. good care. That was a heavy, long interview with our dear friend Skip, wasn't it? I tell you, I've known my dear brother for almost 40 years and he was ready and he let out his brilliance, his heart, his mind, his soul, his insights, his wisdom. It was a magnificent thing. And I love the way you orchestrated it and conducted it. Cause you see, he, he came to play. I mean, you, oh, he came to play. He, he came to solo. He came ooh, to solo. He did a great job. Yeah. Out and he started playing and I said, let him go. He got something to express here. And it was powerful. It, it was, it was. I mean, you could see the excitement over the history that he's going to share with the new documentary. It was a genuine Absolutely. look. This is incredible information. You know, one of the things I forgot to ask him was what that Arabic phrase meant on the church pew. Right. You know, I have to, we'll have to find a way right. to figure that out. Maybe we'll post it on uh, Patreon or something for people. No, that's true. That's you know, it true. was very interesting to, to learn. Anyway, it was so great to have him for so long and, and, we all go back so far. I guess I know Skip since 1981 or so. Um, so that's that's about 40 that's, years. That's, too. that's exactly 40 years. That, yeah, that's exactly right. I think so. I, I guess we about 78, 79. So you're more like 45 years. Ooh, we. Mm, well, yeah. that's that just I don't know how we could be knowing him so long and still only be 29. So I'm <laughs> I'm thoroughly confused by the math. But uh, but it was so great to be with you, as always, Cornell. It's such a treat. And I um, you know, we're going to talk more about Du Bois and more about Kairos and Kenosis. And we're going to we're going to come back to all that. Um, <laughs> just you and me. Um, <laughs> So thank you, Cornell. And I want to thank all of our friends and listeners and colleagues who join us on the tightrope every week. Thank you for being part of the community. We love having you and we have such a great time. And if you're of that ilk, please feel free to share on social media, any platforms that you normally share on. We love hearing feedback from you. And also we want to let you know that we have a Patreon community and we hope you'll join us on Patreon if you want some special behind the scenes clips and some conversations that we're having there. Please join us on patreon.com backslash tightrope pod, patreon.com backslash tightrope pod. So we'll see you there. We'll see you next time on the tightrope and don't fall off the rope. Hang out with us as long as you can. We'll see you again soon. Stay strong, my dear Tricia. I'll do my best, brother. I'll do my best. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>